Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rebecca Curtin, Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School. We will discuss her article, The Art History of Bleistein, which will be published in the Journal of the Copyright Society. So welcome to the show, Rebecca. Hi, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. As you know, I'm a huge fan of, of your work, and I really like this paper in particular, which I heard you present quite some time ago, and it was a real pleasure to read it in its its final form. Uh, but for listeners who, unlike myself, have not yet had the pleasure of reading the paper and might not know so much about copyright law and copyright history, I wonder if you could kind of situate it in copyright doctrine. Right, so you're you're writing about a particular case, the the Bleistein v. Donaldson case. What was that case about? Why was it important? Okay, so picture here we are in 1903, and what has happened is that a, a an industry for lithographic advertisements has grown up. It's hard to imagine now that this might be a case of first impression for courts dealing with copyright, but. Bleistein is the case that told us that pictures in advertisements could be protected by copyright. And the piece of art at issue in particular in uh, Bleistein was uh, a circus poster. So it is a poster featuring, well, actually, there were, there were three different uh, posters, uh, the most famous of which is the one covering the Sturk family bicycle act. So you've got kind of these figures um, of some of them are children, men, women in in, um, circus uniforms doing amazing stunts on bikes. And uh, the the pictures in the posters were copied by another lithographing company, thus resulting in uh, the case that rose all the way to the Supreme Court, partly because the, the copyright statute at that time which was the uh, 1870 uh, Act, had been amended in 1874 uh, with this language that said that pictorial illustrations in connection with the fine arts could be protected. So there arose this question whether these circus posters are really pictorial illustrations in connection with the fine arts, right? Because they seem kind of ordinary, uh, mass-produced, um, and while they're quite entertaining, they're, 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 the amount of technical uh, sophistication in the illustration is relatively low. So there was this question, hey, are these up for grabs because they don't appear to be in connection with what we might think of as the high arts? Or can copyright recognize and protect the value in these kinds of mass-produced uh, pictures? Uh, the author of the opinion uh, is uh, the iconic... Oliver Wendell Holmes. And the opinion, I think, it it comes out and says, yes, uh, we think both under the statute and under the constitutional standard of uh, making progress uh, in the sciences and the useful arts, we can protect advertising. But what's sort of interesting and famous going forward, uh, other than setting that standard under the 1870 Act, uh, is that Holmes makes this point. We now call it the anti-discrimination principle. 
in which he says that it would be really dangerous for judges trained only in the law to be judging the value of art. He thinks that's a bad uh, idea uh, for a number of reasons, but largely he says because he thinks that judges aren't going to be good at recognizing the new languages that artists speak when they come up with avant-garde uh, forms of art. And therefore, that really shouldn't be the job of judges when they're uh, deciding copyright subject matter eligibility. It shouldn't be about whether judges think the art is good or bad or high or low. And that, I think, is is why we continue to sort of view this opinion as a watershed in uh, copyright doctrine. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Like, this case has come to be seen as a really important one in the history of the development of copyright doctrine and in thinking about copyright doctrine. Why have scholars in the past seen it as being particularly important? I mean, what do they think that it did that kind of changed or affected the way we think about what we're doing when we do copyright uh, analysis? Well, I think that, you know, the anti-discrimination principle freed us from thinking about art in a hierarchical way, at least with respect to copyright law, right? I think we think of it as this moment in which uh, we, we don't think about, you know, the the judge's opinion about the art is no longer important. It's not about this uh, this hierarchy of arts anymore. And this was important in its time, of course, because there were other places in the law where a hierarchy of the art was was really enshrined, like the tariff acts, uh, for instance. So it was, I think, a, a, a surprising moment in its in its own time. And going forward, it has has been. Uh, a sort of touchstone. It gets it gets cited a lot, right? When <laughs> particularly, I, I suspect when uh, copyright cases involve art that the, uh, the 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 court doesn't particularly uh, understand, right, or recognize as uh, as as valuable. And there's one other reason uh, that I think probably uh, many scholars feel it, it not to the benefit of of copyright doctrine uh, that that. This opinion sometimes stands for the idea that commercial value can be recognized uh, under copyright, that commercial value is an important way, as opposed to your own personal aesthetic, right? That that's one of the substitutes for the hierarchy of artists to say, oh, well, look, uh, it's commercially valuable and therefore there must be some kind of value in it or people wouldn't pay for it, right? So that has been another, I think, influential um, strain of thought that is often traced uh, to this opinion, though I'm not sure that that was the the right way to read this uh, opinion. I'm not sure that Holmes meant uh, for us to to take that piece out of the opinion and run with it quite in the way that courts did. What is it specifically about Holmes's opinion that led a lot of other courts and maybe legal scholars as well to read it as elevating commercial value over aesthetic value in that way? Well, there's this paragraph at the end of the opinion. It's sort of how, it's it's the moment on which the opinion ends, where um, he's just finished kind of articulating the anti-discrimination principle and said it would be dangerous to have judges think about, you know, whether art be, you know, good from an aesthetic point of view or not. And he makes the comment 
that these circus posters have commercial value. I'll, I'll just uh, read you a little section from the opinion uh, here. He says, yet if they, and he's talking about the circus posters it, or pieces of art, right? If they command the interest of any public, they have a commercial value, and it would be bold to say that they have not an aesthetic and educational value, and the taste of any public is not to be treated with contempt. This is one of the uh, pithy phrases that gets pulled out of this opinion and kind of championing it as an inclusive copyright doctrine um, where commercial value is kind of the, the, the road to access to this um, uh, recognition of value in the art. Right. So there's a lot of features of this opinion, maybe characteristic of a lot of Holmes's opinions, where there's a kind of rhetorical or, or literary flourish that kind of marks them uh, in his distinctive distinctive way. What, what's specific to this opinion kind of makes it unique uh, and why do you see that as important for the purpose of this particular paper? Right. So we've just been talking about how this opinion is remembered as one in which the, the categories of high and low art are collapsed, that we're going to be inclusive about art. But one of the weird features of this opinion is that it's packed with these roughly four places where Holmes decides to make reference to pieces of art that are not at issue in the case. And every single one of the pieces of art that he references are, are pieces of high art. And there are only two different forms, right? He talks about um, formal oil paintings and then etchings. And I, I've always found that kind of odd, right? Why, why is he even bringing in uh, Rembrandt or Goya or Velasquez or Whistler, right? Why is he bringing all these other artists in to an opinion that's really about circus posters? And particularly when the point you would think he would be making would drive him to, to reference very different pieces of art, art outside that kind of elite circle of uh white European male produced art, right? In the, at the highest elite echelon. Well, so you bring in a sort of hypothesis as to what Holmes might've been reacting to. What is that? And, and why do you think it's important? Well, right. So that was the curiosity. That was the point that drew me into the opinion initially. And that's what, that's the article I thought I was going to write. Just an article kind of decoding why it is that there are these other um, artists being brought in to the opinion with uh, the beginning point suspicion that while this is an opinion that takes the position of being inclusive with respect to copyright subject matter eligibility, its, um, its true motivation lies in protecting high art in some way, protecting the freedom or status of high art not to be judged uh, in this way, just as he says that circus posters shouldn't be um, exposed or or put before judges who are not well trained in aesthetics. Yeah, but you you point to another figure who might have had influence on uh, Holmes's perspective on this question of <laughs> high art and decorative art and how that might have informed his perspective. Yeah. So I thought I was going to write about 
just, I mean, I, I entered this article thinking I, w- I was really curious about what was going on in Holmes's mind that would cause him to bring in these uh, other artists. And I was already kind of in a, in a mode where I was thinking biographically, because I've been working, as you know, I've been working on this other project, which is a biography of the first woman to become a lawyer in Massachusetts. And, it, and once you start thinking in, in this way, it's, it's hard to get away from it. So I was, I was just curious about life story and experiences and how those have informed Holmes's jurisprudence. Um, so I started reading biographies of uh, Holmes and came across his wife, Fanny uh, Holmes, and became really just curious about her. I feel like she is an underappreciated uh, influence in his life. And it turned out that she was a very commercially successful artist and an artist of, of, of the kind that I think would have um, influenced uh, Holmes, or at least taught him some lessons from her career that could have have um, predisposed him to think uh, outside of that hierarchical boundary of art. What was the nature of the work that she produced, and and then how do you think it might have affected Holmes's perspective in in respect to like different kinds of different different genres of artwork? So she was in terms of form, an embroiderer. But I hesitate to call her that because the art that she created was so far out of the ordinary genre, the ordinary product of that medium, that it's a little bit hard to categorize her, right? So immediately I start thinking about that boundary between high and low art and realizing that that's exactly what she is obliterating in doing what she did, which was essentially to create landscape paintings using embroidery. So they are a fairly large format, like we're talking maybe, you know, 18 inches by uh, two feet or more high. Uh, she would put them in frames. Um, the, the, the Very few of them have survived, but the one that I have seen out of storage at the Peabody Essex Museum is not only in a frame, it is in a large gilt frame, a big curly cue Victorian <laughs> sort of uh, a gilt frame that you would expect uh, an, an oil painting landscape to be in. And the, how she creates the landscape is really sort of extraordinary. They don't even look like stitches. If you get really close, you can see that she's creating these lines of color with different um, widths of thread, different colors of thread, all used to create effects in the way that, say, brush strokes with oil paintings uh, might might create effects. And you really have to step back from the painting. Like an Impressionist painting, you have to sort of step back from the embroidery to see what it is uh, that she's depicting. Um, in her time, uh, art critics thought uh, that it was... Uh, incredibly innovative what she was doing. They uh, classed her along with the painter uh, William Morris Hunt uh, as one of the you know greatest American painters of uh, her time. Uh, William Morris Hunt himself once said that Fanny was the only really creative artist beside himself in America. Um, Oscar Wilde had the chance to see uh, her uh, work and uh, called her that Penelope of New England, whose silken pictures I found so beautiful. 
Um, that in particular is a kind of poignant reaction because just like the Penelope in Homer's Odyssey, who tore up her weaving in uh, the night, Fanny eventually uh, destroys almost all of her paintings or all of her embroideries right at the moment when uh, Oliver is nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court and they move to Washington. So that aspect is really fascinating tidbit. Like, why do you think she chose to do that? What did it mean? And sort of, uh, like, like, how do we understand that decision on her part? Well, there's a little clue from later in their lives together. She apparently saved one um, that was hanging in their apartment in Washington. And when visitors would remark upon it, she would say that it had been done by Wendell's first wife, as if that person were different from herself. But indeed, he had only one one wife. They were together for almost 60 years. Uh, so I, I would interpret that as a kind of feeling that it was a new life when they went to D.C., a new, there was a sort of breaking point, and she felt like a different person as uh, a, a wife of a Supreme Court justice in Washington, I think she did take on a number of roles in that uh, life that maybe would have made it difficult for her to continue to pursue uh, her art at the level at which she was doing, which was quite high. I mean, her, her work was uh, exhibited in Boston and New York, uh, including at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston. She sold a number of pieces. Cornelius Vanderbilt was one of the collectors who uh, had her pieces, though apparently the pieces he had have also been lost. Um, her pieces were selling for uh, $500 a piece. Uh, and as a, a benchmark, Wendell's salary when they were first married in 1872 uh, was uh, $2,000. So really, $500 a piece is a significant uh, amount of income uh, for them. So as you mentioned earlier, Holmes discusses different works of art throughout the opinion in in Bleistein in several different different places. And you talk about each of those in the paper. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on how you think that his experience of art as mediated through Fanny, among other places, might have informed his choices about what to talk about and also sort of how he thought that the art he discussed might have been bearing upon the question before the court in that case. So I think there are about four lessons that he takes from uh, his his journey as an art lover alongside uh, Fanny and and through, uh, to a certain extent, through uh, her eyes. Uh, So the first one is the moment in in the opinion where he's talking about uh, representative art, because apparently there had been a discourse around these circus posters that said, well, look, uh, these are just realistic depictions of the circus act. So that doesn't really count as, as what we would think of today as original expression. That looks more like a fact, right? So that's not really art. And he talks about representative artists in the high art realm as a way, I think, of pointing out that no, uh, art can choose to be representative without uh, lowering its its quality or its ability to express. And in fact, uh, Whistler and Velasquez, the two high artists that he cites at this moment, were 
uh, famous for their ability to create living likenesses, right? And indeed, this was something that Fanny was also lauded for doing, right? That when you are in the presence of one of her embroideries, it's really amazing how realistic the effect is, right? There's even uh, motion in the wind blowing the leaves, something that uh, critics remarked about, right? So that's the first uh, idea that when we judge uh, art, we we shouldn't really judge it with respect to whether it's representative or not. That's uh, that's not important. And indeed, he makes this comment about, you know, others are free to copy the original. And what he means by that is you're free to go back to the subject matter and create something new. And that that's an, import, an important uh, sort of uh, artistic activity and outlet for uh, creativity. And then there's the second moment where he's talking about, um, pictorial illustrations, right? Because remember, there was this question in the opinion about whether uh, circus posters could qualify under the statute as pictorial illustrations connected with uh, the high arts. So he pulls out the example of these etchings, etchings by Rembrandt and this guy called uh, Muller. And here I think um, he's he's thinking about um, the value of, of art as Re- reproductive art, where it's not just the creation of art that is valuable, but also its dissemination. And um, I think he's particular. he'd always loved etchings. And in fact, um, he'd been exposed to etchings for the first time at the school that Fanny's father ran. That was how they met, actually. Uh, Wendell was a student of her father's. And the biographies mention, you know, he, he bought his own etching tools. It's really into etching. So this very sort of, of early experience with art as a, as a student in school, I think, teaches him how precious it is to be able to see and interact with the art in the first place. Um, remember, I think he's particularly interested in Muller. Uh, Rembrandt, of course, a very well-known uh, uh, artist, but Muller perhaps less well-known today, but would have been very well-known uh, to Wendell because uh, the copy of Raphael's Madonna de San Sisto uh, that he remarks on in uh, the opinion was one that was available to him in the Harvard Library, had just been acquired at his freshman year, uh, and had been donated by the cousin of a close friend. Right, So uh, I, I think there's a, it, that's a deeply personal uh, reference for him. And in fact, he was so invested in it that when the court reporter miscited the, the artist of that etching, citing Moritz Steinle's uh, copy of uh, the Madonna, you can go to Wendell's personal copy of the opinion and see that he has crossed it out and written Muller uh, in the margin. Uh, then third, there's a place where he talks about ads for soap and the paintings of Degas. And there he he's pulling in Degas, I think, because of Degas' fascination with ballet dancers. And one of those circus posters uh, was covering a, a ballet act, right? And uh, what he says is, we can't have a rule that would excommunicate the paintings of Degas. Therefore, we can't just look at this circus poster of ballet dancers and say, because of its low subject matter, it can't possibly be art. 
And attached to that, this idea of, you know, using uh, paintings for uh, advertisements is indeed there had been a famous uh, uh, case of a, of a, a British uh, artist, Sir John Millet, who had sold an oil painting for uh, use in soap advertisements, that it's okay for art to be commercially successful, right? That's not um, an indication of low art. In fact, as we've said uh, already, he's recognizing this idea that commercially uh, successful art has by its nature a kind of value, possibly not one recognized by aesthetic hierarchies, but one nonetheless that the the law should be open uh, to recognizing. And indeed, Fanny's art uh, was in that category, right, of commercially successful um, uh, genre-busting art. Uh, And finally, uh, he he ends with this anti-discrimination principle, uh, saying it would be dangerous for judges uh, trained only in the law Uh, to judge art because it's unclear whether Goya's etchings or uh, Manet's uh, paintings would be uh, recognized uh, at their uh, initial appearance. Both of those uh, artists, I think, clearly avant-garde artists. In the case of Goya, um, it was pointed out to me by uh, Professor uh, Amy Adler that there was a series of etchings that Goya made about uh, the Peninsular Wars, um, the, the Disasters of War series that Goya decided not to have published during his lifetime. Uh, those came out in 1863, um, 35 years after uh, Goya's death. Um, I think she may be right that these would, would be the etchings he's thinking of because in 1863, uh, Wendell himself was directly experiencing the horrors of war uh, in uh, the American Civil War, and I think it provides a kind of poignant illustration of art that just was not ready in its own time. Well, Rebecca, in closing, how do you think this new information and this new perspective on Holmes's experiences and understandings should inflect or inform our understanding of his opinion in Bleistein? So, I think the ultimate effect of Fanny's influence was to get him to recognize that the world will not always look the way it does today, right? Like her genre busting, uh, uh, gender norm busting experience as a commercially successful artist prepared him to recognize that the art world would not always be judged by the aesthetics that perhaps he himself uh, held um, that indeed um, he acknowledged the fact that the world could change, even if it wasn't something that he necessarily wanted to see happen. He understood that copyright law, at least, should not stand in its way. Uh, and that, I think, is, is a valuable tenant to preserve from this uh, opinion. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent article. Uh, I really hope listeners will check it out because there's so much great stuff in there. Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
I'm Bozo the Clown. I'm going to take you on a trip to the circus. Start on page one in your picture book. Oh, that's a picture of me. Now, whenever I blow my whistle, that means you must turn the page to see the other pictures in the book. Now, don't turn the page yet. Wait for the whistle. Just follow me, Bozo the Clown, and I'll take you to see Circus Town. Now, turn the page. Here's the big circus tent where all the animals and people do wonderful things. Let's visit the animal tent first. Oh, here's a fellow with a very long neck. When he runs, he makes everyone laugh. His head's so small and his legs so tall. Hey, uh, what's your name, mister? <laughs> I'm a joy round. I'm the tallest animal in the world. My neck is so long that when I swallow, my Adam's apple bounces. I can go without drinking water for a long time. Well, I hope you have a nice time at the circus. Remember, that whistle means turn the page. Say, what kind of a horse is this? The rider would be dandy. She's small as a pony, but not as tame. And she looks like peppermint candy. <laughs> I'm a zebra. I march in the circus parade because I have such beautiful stripes. You should see how fast I can run. They try to make me work, but I kick and step. <laughs> oh, there goes that lion again. Turn the page. Here's Sultan the Lion. He's the biggest cat of all. Hello, Mr. Lion. We've come to pay a call. I'm the Lion. Did you hear me roar? Don't be afraid. I like to roar. I'm very brave and strong. That's why they call me the King of Beasts. When I'm hungry, they feed me raw meat. But I wish I were back home in the jungle. And now that you've seen me here in my cage, I think you should turn to the very next page. Ah, after we change the record. <laughs>